This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 5th, 2017. Every Monday, I'll be bringing you brand new content, but for the next while, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with the British author and journalist Rob Lyons. He's the author of Panic on a Plate. I hope you enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Make your view heard and get it included in the next show. Email your opinion to podcast at challengingopinions.com and we can discuss it in the next podcast. On a Skype line now from the UK, I have Rob Lyons. Rob is the campaigns manager at Action on Consumer Choice. He's also the author of PanicOnAPlate.com, the blog. Uh, Rob, thank you for joining me. Um, what's the idea behind your blog? Uh, well, it's sort of to support a book, which is also called Panic on a Plate. And basically, it's about trying to challenge the idea that the, that modern food is uh, inevitably bad for us, um, that we should be very worried about it constantly, and that therefore that what is required is various forms of government intervention in our lives in order to protect us from ourselves, essentially, or protect us from evil food corporations who are trying to kill us. Uh, I would suggest that actually our food's never been safer, it's never been more plentiful um, than ever before. And then that, that, that if you look at it from a historical perspective, all of that stuff is unnecessary. And then actually, you know, we're in a very, very good place. There's no need to panic. Sure, there may be no need to panic, but uh, it's no harm to be careful about what you eat, is it? I think that it's gone way too far. So that, that, obviously there are, there are things that are very immediate, sensible precautions, for example, about how you prepare your food. You should wash your hands. You shouldn't wash a, wash a chicken and let the uh, the water then splash all over the kitchen because there's a decent chance you're going to get salmonella from it. Um, and you should cook your food properly. There's some, some there's some very sensible things which are part and parcel of you know learning how to cook and learning how to cook safely. But when you look at some of the, the broader scares that have been uh, going around in the past few years, whether it's about obesity, whether it's about red meat most recently with the um, the WHO saying that processed meat is a known carcinogen and that red meat is a probable carcinogen, I think that that's grossly overstated and, and is alarming to people because it doesn't really give any context for the, the risks that might be associated with with uh, those products. Actually, I think actually those food, those products are to all intents and purposes safe. So there's, there's lots of that kind of thing that's been going on in the last 20 years or so. And I think that that's sort of necessary and, and, and actually sort of t- detracts from the pleasure of uh, the, the food and, and the, the fact that we have this abundance. I was reading one um, post that you made about food labeling uh, in the UK where you live and uh, actually across the EU, there's a proposal to remove what's called best before dates. Now, these are like expiry dates on food, but they're more of a recommendation. 
can you tell me what's the background on that and what did you, what were you saying in that post? Well, so yeah, so so the, the the best before day is is really about quality rather than about safety. It says that um, we the manufacturers think that if you eat it by this date, you'll get the food as we intended to deliver it to you. If you eat it after that date, it may well still be safe, but it, you know the quality may have deteriorated. Just perfectly reasonable um thing for manufacturers to say but unfortunately it's widely misunderstood it's widely understood as a safety date and therefore people have been throwing away what is in fact perfectly good food because they're concerned that it's no longer in its best before date so there's also this uh, ongoing uh, confusion in in british supermarkets at least between uh, best before dates, use by dates, and sell by dates. So uh, the sell by date is the supermarket saying, "Well, if you buy it now, um, it'll be still be safe for a day or two afterwards." But we really need to take it off the shelves. So it's really for their purposes as much as anything. And the use by date is is more intended to be a safety thing, although there are considerable margins of error in that. And so it's much better for us actually to get rid of some of these dates and. Uh, it, it it feels like I need to put a diary for everything uh, everything that I buy. Yeah, it, well, exactly. So what, rather than doing doing all that, just like open a packet and sniff it and look at it and learn what's uh, sensible what's sensible to eat. And if you know, if it smells or looks suspicious in any way, don't eat it. And otherwise, it's probably fine. Especially if you're going to cook it, uh, just make sure you cook it properly. Um, and 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 actually, actually, that would lead to that would help consumers and. Uh, the environment in the sense that we would be throwing away less food and we would be wasting less money. So there's a lot of confusion about those things and probably simplifying it is a sensible thing all around. And and uh, in fact, environmentalists have been pushing for this to take away the use-by date on things like coffee or dried pasta or dried rice that really doesn't run out for, for years. They want to remove that so that people can just make a sensible decision from themselves isn't that a, a kind of coming from a very sensible point of view? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I might disagree with environmentalists about the urgency of the problem of food waste. But, but it's still the case that, you know, food waste is expensive for consumers. And if this, if the labeling is less misleading, then that's, that's a good thing. So for example, you know, in reading about this, I realized that I didn't need to pay attention to, for example, the use by dates on eggs. You know, I should test my own eggs and see if they, uh, you know, still look edible and you know the vast majority of cases i can use them for two or three weeks after they're used by date by which time they've run i've run out of them and they're perfectly safe to eat and tell me how you link that in with labeling for gm foods well see that this this is a, a a very distinct thing see i think that when you put a label on something it's conveying a message to people so when, when you say um for example it, it contains uh certain nutrients or whatever that's information to people if you say this is gm food then mm -hmm. you're alerting people to, to to the fact that this is somehow different to regular food and therefore i you're pushing the choice onto them do you want to consume this product and implying that there might be some reason why they might not want to, to buy the product um, and that might be to do with safety and I think that that's a terribly misleading thing because there's absolutely no evidence um, that GM food is really any different from um, from the food produced by what we should call conventional methods and as the evidence of the US over the last 10 or 15 years shows there's no evidence of 
uh, anybody being sickened uh, or having any pro- health problems because of GM food. So I think but by flagging that up, it may look on the surface like you're giving people consumer choice, but actually what you're doing is you're kind of warning them off something. And from the f- point of view of food manufacturers, if they see that even just a small percentage of their potential custom is being lost because of this, then that they're going to say, well, you know, our bottom line suggests that we should stick to traditional uh, sources of these foods, and therefore the, the sure. Potential- but, but but hang on, hang on. The the um you in your blog post you were um, essentially saying that people who were saying that best before dates, which were misleading on things like rice and dried pasta, should be removed. But somebody who wanted to have GM food labeled uh, was therefore being hypocritical if they. Uh, agreed with those two positions. The misleading dates on uh, best before dates, giving misleading information is one thing. But surely if the consumer wants some information and it's factual, they're entitled to it. Well, there are other ways in which people can go and go out and look for um, uh, sort of products that they will know that in, in the the process are also GM free. So for example, if they want to buy organic, they can go out and get organic food and uh, they'll know that that's, you know, certainly according to British rules, that will also be GM free. But I think that by specifically labeling something as GM, you're sending effectively a warning message about something that doesn't need a warning. And I think they're being very uh, cynical in this. I have to say, they, I think that people who are against GM food think that this will have the effect of, dr- of pushing uh, regular consumers who are actually not that bothered either way haven't thought about the issue but it might push regular consumers away from it in enough numbers that the companies themselves will then withdraw gm foods from the shelves no, but hang, hang on a second if i don't want gm food i don't have to explain to anybody why it's safe or dangerous if i don't want to surely i should have the autonomy to say i don't want to eat it putting a label on it doesn't interfere with anybody who doesn't care if you know on my pickles or whatever there might be a label saying it's kosher i'm not jewish so it just uh, washes over me but people who want that information surely they're entitled to it i think well i think that it's perfectly possible for those people to go out and and, and find out about that that kind of thing but i think that the the, the broader effect oh, no, the no, intent, hang, hang on a second intent, hang on a second if you're, in the, if you're in the supermarket if you're in the supermarket and you for whatever reason you want to know whether a product contains uh gm ingredients uh, what's the justification of saying no you're not allowed to know that i'm not saying that anybody's not allowed to know it i think that labeling it specifically on products is the intent of that and the effect of that will be to push people away from gm foods unnecessarily but who, who's to say uh, who's to make that decision whether it's necessarily or not other than the consumer i think that if you put you give the official seal of approval to uh, a particular kind of label, you're saying something more than, oh, by the way, you know, you might as well say, oh, for customers who want to know but that their food is red or something, we're labeling this as, you know, this is red food rather than blue food. It's a trivial um, distinction between different foods. Uh, and to give it the, uh, the, the, seal, the official seal of approval to say that it's more than a a trivial difference, I think, is a really big prob- problem. And so I don't think, I don't support it. I don't think it's a meaningful additional choice for consumers. It's certainly true that uh, large food companies have resisted very uh, vigorously anything that would force them to disclose whether their products contain GM foods or not. That alone surely says that 
some consumers are interested. And if they're interested, uh, what's, what's the harm? I don't see how simply telling them, you know, if I turn around my packet of biscuits or any other product, I can see, uh, a whole list of ingredients. Most of them I pay no attention to. Why would listing or specifying that ingredient make any, be any different to someone who doesn't care? Uh, well, I think, first of all, unfortunately in the EU, it's very unlikely you're going to have very much in the way of GM ingredients in your food anyway. As for the wider world, well, as I said, I think that there, it's, it's, it's important to understand that, the, um, that this is not a meaningful dis- distinction. If you want to, if, if you're one of the very, very narrow minority, who are very, very specifically concerned about GM foods, I want to absolutely make sure that you do not get GM foods, then you should either buy organic or should, you shouldn't buy processed foods. Because uh, and certainly in the United States, there is a reasonably high likelihood that there will be some kind of GM ingredient in it. And you'll know that already. So the, so I don't think that there is any need for, uh, to provide a warning to, essentially that's what it is, a warning to to it's information those, those those concern those who are not concerned and suddenly highlight something which isn't worth highlighting well for example on some products uh, it states that they contain uh, folic acid that's important information for a narrow sliver of people women who are either pregnant or trying to get pregnant because that's an important nutrient for them they can check the pack for that uh, everybody else pays no attention. I don't see why the issue should be any different. Uh, no, no, I think that is a uh, medically significant difference. Uh, folic acid is important. It's, uh, it's it's now being added to foods, and uh, it's of no detriment to anybody else. And I think I think that um, that is a significant thing that's worth labelling. I don't think GM is worth labelling. Okay. Um, you mentioned on another post on your blog that I was reading uh, about obesity and you brought it up at the top. Do you think that we are heading towards an obesity crisis? Uh, no. I mean, if you look at the figures for the uh, US and the UK over the past 10 years or so, um, obesity has broadly uh, plateaued um, in, mm-hmm. most, in most groups. Um, Amongst children in the UK, I've, I'm not less familiar with the U, US figures, the most recent ones, but in the UK, those figures have, uh, if anything, gone down in, in the past 10 years or so. So the idea that, that this, you know, we were shooting upwards towards a situation where everybody in society was getting fatter and fatter, um, I think that that's certainly been disproved. The only group that I am aware of that whether there is, there is still a, a potential problem of rising obesity rates among, amongst African Americans and, uh, understanding the specifics of their circumstances, I think would be very, very worthwhile. But in terms of a general obesity crisis where children are going to be dying before their parents, I think that that's, um, that's certainly not proven to be the case. That, that was a, a kind of a zombie statistic that was brought up. It's, it's absolutely not true. The life yeah. expectancy is going up, not down. Uh, but, the point in general is that even if obesity is not rising quickly, it's still a fairly big problem. You have, for example, children presenting with type 2 diabetes, which is normally only uh, happens to people in uh, uh, middle age or older and uh, seriously o- uh, overweight. Whether you argue about the figure going up or down for whatever population, you'd have to agree it's a fairly serious problem. Uh, I think that there's um, that the, we would be better to have a much more differential uh, approach to understanding obesity. See, uh, when people say something like 25% of the UK population, for example, is obese. 
then there's the implication that 25% of the UK population is ill in some way. But in fact, if you look at, you know, sort of mortality statistics for, uh, across different, um, uh, you know, body sizes, you'll see mm-hmm. that, that, you know, between sort of normal weight and, uh, slightly overweight and through to mild obesity, there really isn't very much difference at all in terms of life expectancies. However, there is a small minority of society who are having some very, very genuine problems who are unable to control their weight. They get very, very big and it is very distressing for them. And finding out ways, the reasons why those specific people get so fat, why, for example, they may feel outrageously hungry the whole time and want to eat a lot or why their bodies store uh, fat in such a uh, unproductive way um, or why mm-hmm. you know some you know this small minority of children um, in, um, develop type 2 diabetes very early um, that's that's worth worth looking into very specifically rather than trying to scare the whole population about it because the, the vast majority of the population do not have anything to worry about and the, the there are some very interesting little sort of niggles with this thing for example in the uk we're seeing these um these cases of children with type 2 diabetes and i think it's something in the region of 90 to 95 percent of them are in minority ethnic groups now uh what why would that be i don't think it's well poor diet might be might be a function of of uh, uh poverty it might be a subject, a part of poverty. It might be a part of um, the specific diets of those uh, um, pe- people from those backgrounds, and maybe specific uh, genetic uh, traits that you know that we haven't picked up on yet. For you know, that's worth looking into. I think there's some serious-minded medical research to try to resolve these problems, which are often very distressing for this minority of people. I think that would be very, very worthwhile. Inspecting children's lunch boxes, as is, as is going on in the UK at the moment, or trying to scare everybody in the population into believing that what they eat is going to kill them or that it's going to kill their children, I think is very, very counterproductive. In pre-industrial times, before there were, uh, you know, industrially produced foods, humans were essentially programmed by evolution to see and to eat what they needed to eat. So, for example, children are attracted to brightly coloured sweet foods because in evolutionary terms, that meant fruit that gave you vitamins and energy that you couldn't produce within your own body. It is possible for the food industry now to make foods that ring all the bells that say, eat me, that are brightly coloured, that are sweet or whatever, but don't actually contain those nutrients. And they can potentially do that very cheaply and sell an awful lot of food that is very attractive, but very unhealthy. Don't we need some sort of control to say, you know, you can't shovel the most awful, cheapest stuff, fill it with colorings and flavorings and and sell it? Well, I mean, I still I still would maintain that our diets are far better than pre-industrial times anyway, um, because of the the range of foods that we want we have available to us. And you know, you walk into a supermarket, the first thing you see, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, but if you go into a British supermarket, the first aisles that you see are fresh fruit and vegetables, fresh meat, cheeses, things like that. And you have to go a long way to uh, to find. Anything that might be regarded as, as but if you look at if you look at no matter no matter what Western country you're in, if you look at very heavily marketed foods, uh, the frozen pizzas, uh, the TV dinners, and whatever, uh, and the uh, I've seen Domino's pizzas recently now doing a sweet pizza with chocolate and, and candy on top. 
those are the foods that are being pushed very hard. Is that always responsible? I think that, that as long as those foods are eaten in a sensible manner, i.e. Yeah, they're, they're part of a, a, a varied diet, I think that, uh, that, that there's absolutely no reason why you, once in a while you shouldn't enjoy um, uh, you know, that kind of pizza, apart from the small detail that it's, I suspect it tastes absolutely ghastly and I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Yeah. So that, 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 that you know, I would defend these, these I, companies. These companies are vastly profitable. They I, sell I, a huge I amount would of defend Domino's right to sell you whatever they want. I, but I also defend my right to say that their food is crap. <laughs> crap, crap is a British term that we won't have to explain. <laughs> um, Rob Lyons of panicontheplate.com, also the campaign's manager for Action on Consumer Choice. Thank you very much for talking to me. Cheers. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on April 5th, 2017. I have links in the show notes to Rob Lyon's book and blog and other references for things that we were talking about. Do you know somebody who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes and give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O. You can also follow Rob Lyons at Rob Spiked. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can use iTunes if you have an Apple device or Google Play Music if you're on Android. There are links for these and there's also an RSS feed if you use that. You can find them all or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Friday, that's April 7th, I'll have another Rob. That's Rob Morse, the co-host of the Polite Society podcast. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 